Summer greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's uh, lecture series, online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the Institute. Thank you to, to everyone for joining us on Friday morning or evening, depending on your time zone, for today's talk by editors Midori Yamamura and Yuchi Lee on their recently published book, Visual Pre Representations of the Cold War and Postcolonial Struggles, Art in the East and Southeast Asia. Uh, this talk is uh, co-organized with the Department of Visual Studies at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. Uh, Midori Yamamura is an assistant professor of art history at Kingsborough Community College, CUNY, and the author of Yayoi Kusama, Inventing the Singular. Uh, she is a specialist in post-World War II Asian and Asian diaspora art, and currently working on her second book, Japanese Contemporary Art Since 1989, Emergence of the Local in the Age of Globalization. Uh, Professor Yamamura has received fellowships from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, a Mellon Foundation, Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at CUNY, and the Ford Foundation, among others. Uh, Yushi Lee is a uh, research assistant professor in the Department of Visual Studies, Lingan University. Uh, she is a Judith Nelson Postdoctoral Fellow in Contemporary Art at UNSW Art and Design, Sydney, and an adjunct researcher at Tate Research Center, Asia. Uh, Professor Lee's research engages with aesthetics of performance, uh, art in Asia, and socially in, uh, engaged practices in curation resisting neoliberal globalization. Uh, currently, she is working on a book project examining effect and the artistic autonomy of post-socialism. Uh, please welcome Midori Yamamura and Yuchi Lee. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Binyujie. I am a research assistant professor in the Department of Visual Studies at Lingnan University in Hong Kong. I am speaking today as a co-moderator together with Midori Yamamura, who will speak in a minute. We are very honored to have worked with 11 other authors on the book, Visual Representations of the Cold War and Post-Colonial Struggles, Art in East and Southeast Asia. And we do want to thank the Routledge team and acknowledge support from City University of New York, University of New South Wales, and Delina University. As you can see, Midori and myself have put the book discount code in the background, which you can also share with your peers. Just to explain the format of today's panel, Midori will briefly introduce the book structure and followed by four presentations and a roundtable plus Q&A. And as Anthony already mentioned, you're welcome to put your questions in the chat, which will be discussed during the Q&A. So before I hand it over to Middley, I'd like to explain uh, briefly my view on the relation between the history of the Cold War in Asia and contemporary art historiography, which, as you know, is the major theme of the book. Although there is a growing number of English language literatures on Asian art and global art in uh, recent decades, there is still a split between the discourses uh, produced in the English-speaking academia and scholarly publications of other languages, such as uh, the Chinese one. In the course of researching modernity, contemporaneity, and decoloniality in Asia, I often find myself torn between the critique against essentialism as a cultural symptom of post-colonial nation-states and the strategic southerness, which I evoke from various scholars, including Ruth Singbao. So according to Ruth Singbao, strategic southerness is no fixed notion about knowledge from the South, nor uh, global South. It seems to be a strategy of refusing to be tamed and instrumentalized under neoliberal globalization. 
We know discourses and theories are important, but it is difficult to generate them without enough art historical writing. In the cultural sites discussed in the book, modernity does not necessarily describe a breach from cultural heritage and contemporaneity does not always overlap with decolonization. To grasp uh, this kind of anachronism in Asian art historiography, one has to understand how the Cold War in Asia caused certain ideological divisions, the adoptions or absence of certain styles and thoughts and the connections and disconnections among various sites. So for the book, we have brought together visual productions of different temporalities in the heterogeneous cultural zone that is labeled as Asia. And I embrace the fact that we are on the way of discovering more while admitting our failures and constraints. So now I'd like to invite uh, Midori Yamamura to speak about the book. Good morning and good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for attending to our talk this morning and this evening. In 2018, when Yuchili and I began working on a book proposal for the Rotrich's Cold War in Asia series, we both wanted to look at the Cold War from the South and wanted to think about its economic impact. Out of our research and discussions, what became apparent after the fall of the Soviet Union was the triumph of the United States as the last superpower, uh, which is not a new concept. Uh, but within this new set of fourth lines, the newly independent, politically unstable, and less economically developed countries, those emerged after World War II, became the subject of the more, more economically developed nations. And it came with a new moral code, which is the freedom to make inordinate gains without commensurable service to community, as historian Karl Poliani observed in 1971. It's a type of freedom today known as neoliberalism. As the art historians, our goal became not to explore neoliberalism itself, but the artistic responses to the situations that created by neoliberalism. Uh, we could have sh shaped the book in many different ways, but eventually we agreed to look at East and Southeast Asia, especially the Pacific Island chains where the US presence was and is still prominent for defense purposes. To these, we added Australia because in the 1990s, Australia became an important hub of Asian art. In the book, Russell Storr contributed an important new research on Australian exhibition history, considering that art can make people's collective perception visible, which he considers the, is quote, an important means of understanding a na national psyche in retrospect, unquote. With the Korean War currently in a state of armistice and Okinawan facing, Okinawans facing the controversial relocation of the US base, and with China being the world's second largest economy, emerging as a new threat to the United States, the Cold War in Asia is nowhere close to ending, thus we conceive the Cold War as continuous. The three sections of this book are 
Part one, joining the game, trauma and regionalism. Part two, visual gallery and primary documents. Part three, the continuous Cold War. Part one and three are scholarly writings, which are bridged by uh, the artistic works and primary sources by the artists. The contributing scholars are Leslie Ma, Roger Nelson, uh, who are here today, uh, Ulan Di Gandro, Russell Storr, uh, Yuji Lee, Rebecca Jennison, Jun Jun Lee, and myself. Uh, the artistic section uh, includes Hiroshi Sunairi, FX Harusono, Dean Kyule, Oso Yi, and Kao Jun Hon. And uh, in this structure, uh, we are hoping that the book is going to stimulate a reflection rather than pushing particular answers. So thank you very much, and I hope you will enjoy today's talk. Thank you very much, Midori. Um, so I'd like to uh, start introducing uh, the first speaker, uh, Leslie Ma. Leslie Ma is curator of Ink Art at M Plus, which is a museum of visual culture in Hong Kong, opening in late 2021. And since 20, uh, 2013, she has led the museum's acquisition and programming on Ink Art and is on the core planning team of the opening exhibitions and publications. Lastly, curated exhibitions such as The Weight of Lightness, Ink Art at M Plus in 2017, and also co-curated the Parasite exhibition, Great Crescent, Art and Agitation in the 1960s, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. She was project director at Taegu Chan Studio in New York and curatorial coordinator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. Leslie holds a PhD in art history, theory and criticism from the University of California, San Diego. So without further ado, let's uh, welcome Leslie to the podium. Good evening and good morning, everyone. My name is Leslie Ma. I'm curator of Inkard at M Plus in Hong Kong. Um, first, this is my pleasure to be here today with all the prestigious speakers um, and all the audience members. Um, but I would like to first thank Yujie and Midori for inviting me to contribute to this meaningful anthology. So I will begin um, uh, with a synopsis of the paper um, and then go into details about the methodology, context, and the artworks. So the title of my talk on my paper today, The New Chinese Landscape in the Cold War Era, this paper, in fact, is a modified um, from my 2016 dissertation chapter. The New Chinese Landscape, six contemporary Chinese artists, marked the watershed moment when modernist ink paintings produced outside of mainland China became a representative of a post-war Chinese cultural identity. Sponsored by the John D. Rockefeller Third Fund, the precursor to today's Asian Cultural Council, and organized by art historian Zhu Jingli, this exhibition toured the U.S. from 1966 to 1968 with paintings that synthesized ideas from classical Chinese landscape paintings and mid-century American abstraction made by Chinese artists in Taiwan, including three from the Fifth Moon Painting Society and the U.S., 
This paper details the stylistic and geographical shift in Chinese art by investigating the impact of Cold War geopolitics on aesthetic choices, curatorial framework, and viewer expectations. Close readings of the works contextualize them within the history of Chinese landscape painting and the international trends of abstract art, revealing the political meanings of the new landscape. The study illuminates how the internationalization of ink painting steered by the Chinese diaspora determined the course of post-war Chinese art. So this exhibition um, that I'm focusing on is in fact the first exhibition of Chinese painting to be presented in the post-war Western world. So I'm using this exhibition, um, this methodology is using the exhibition as a seminal force that shaped the development of ink art and post-war Chinese art. And through this exhibition, we can see how the forces of Cold War uh, geopolitics impacted the course of our history. And by looking at the exhibition curation and circulation, as well as how the artworks fit into this framework. So just a few things about the exhibition basics. Here you see um, the exhibition toured in the US from, this, from 1966 to 68, um, and this was uh, on the screen, you see almost the last leg of this show um, at the Cleveland Museum of Art. This show included six artists, all were born in mainland China, but left around 1948-49, um, very important years in Chinese history. Um, the exhibition included 60 works, uh, about 10 works each um, uh, of, of each artist, um, and had went to 15 institutions across the U.S., um, including New York and many uh, Midwestern big cities um, and their university art galleries. The main um, subject of the exhibition, obviously, is Chinese landscape painting. And why was it Chinese landscape? So you see uh, the curator, Zhu Jingli, here at the time was uh, the, a Chinese art historian at the University of Iowa. And he was among the earliest Chinese, uh, earliest art historians of Chinese art that formulated Chinese art as an academic study in the U.S. So he already played an instrumental role in for, um, having starting that discipline. Of course, art, art historians at the time studied classical art. So he went to Taiwan in 1964 um, with other Chinese art historians to look at the National Palace Museum's um, collection in Taiwan. And on this trip, he identified the artists that he wanted to put together in this exhibition. In a way, he saw them as the hope of Chinese painting. And he had, I, he had identified landscape as a main theme, not only because the artists uh, were using that, but he knew that as a Chinese art historian, landscape is the highest form of Chinese painting. It was the most distinguished, um, uh, highest form of literati culture, um, and also most dis distinguished internationally as a representation of Chinese art. Um, and as, uh, as he cites Chinese landscape history, landscape painting since the 10th century, um, have become a, a surrogate for many things. It could be uh, a natural um, in all of the nature. It could be um, the educated scholars' moral aspiration. It could be political refuge, emotional dwelling, as well as just singing praises for the uh, celebrations of the magnificent landscape. So this genre of painting has already acquired many kinds of um, interpretations throughout the centuries. And this is something to remember uh, for that for our discussion. So next, I would like to introduce a little bit about the political and artistic context in Taiwan at the time. 
Um, and as, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, many US-based art historians went to Taiwan to look at uh, treasures from the imperial collection that was brought to Taiwan by the nationalists in 1940, after 1949. And this is sort of the key and why this article would be in this book. Um, 19, 1949 is the watershed moment uh, when the nationalist government was defeated in the Chinese Civil War and retrieved to Taiwan. This, this um, split not only is historical or um, personal for many people, but also is split the, the art development in these places between China, uh, between mainland China and Taiwan. Um, but as uh, Taiwan sits on the um, very strategic zone on the Pacific Rim, it is the only China, the free China, recognized by the international world and part of that, uh, 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 the free China in, in the West, Western democracy kind of uh, understanding. This, the country needed to establish itself not only politically, but also culturally. And these Orthodox Chinese paintings from centuries ago thus became the cultural asset and also diplomatic tool um, for the nationalist government in Taiwan. But at the same time, they were uh, these sort of um, pillars of Chinese culture for artists living in Taiwan at the time, as they deal with the idea of displacement um, and frustration, uh, having to move to Taiwan. Many of them uh, were already established or as teenagers losing that uh, connection to the motherland. But at the same time, uh, these, a lot of these mainland-born artists moved to Taiwan, um, were already educated as artists since the uh, dynastic time. Here you see two examples of um, artists representing more or less um, these mainland ink painters um, who were continuing their styles that they had back in China. Um, here are Pu Xingyu and Huang Junbi, the top two paintings on the right. And these are the styles that were quite dominant in academies uh, for training in Chinese ink painting in Taiwan at the time. But at the same time, Taiwan was under Japanese, uh, uh, was a Japanese colony for 50 years prior to 1945. So you have uh, Taiwanese-born artists who were trained under the Japanese art system, painting uh, Western-style oil paintings. And here you see two examples of artists. Uh, one is more figurative, the other one uh, going after this bovist um, style in Taiwan. So you can see that in Taiwan, this is a very um, complex cultural contact zone and in this post-war decade. And the artists that I'm going to talk about and also talked about in this paper um, have to deal, had to deal with these kind of complex uh, powers and forces within their, their vis visual uh, vista. Um, so the first uh, three artists in this group, um, in this exhibition, were part of this modernist art group called Fifth Moon uh, Fifth Moon Society, and on the top right, you see one of their uh, annual exhibitions in Taiwan in the 60s. This group began in the late 50s and uh, were active uh, all today, and these artists are still working today. Um, but at the time in Taiwan, they were trying to carve out a new space for their painting. Um, as you can see in the previous slide, all these different styles were there for their reference, but also as uh, the, the departure point for their own voice. So at the, at the time also, um, they wanted to make sure their paintings um, not only follow a certain uh, glorious idea of Chinese uh, culture, uh, but also have to reflect their psychological and emotional reality as well as the country's reality.
society. So in a way, they're, uh, they're negotiating between that cultural heritage and their personal experiences. At the same time, as uh, both Midori and Yujie had alluded to, um, American forces, especially cultural forces, were especially strong in the Pacific at this time. The influx of information about American abstract expressionism has, of course, reached these artists' uh, uh, radar. So they also wanted to become artists that are uh, that make make works that are readable on the international stage. So with all these forces together, they decided that um, a kind of synthesis between ideas from classical landscape painting and calligraphy and this kind of American expressive uh, abstraction is something they want to push forward to. And in, in the way here, you see their works uh, represented by Liu Guosong, Zhuang Zhe, and Feng Zhongrei. Um, their works try to imp import new techniques, abandon traditional tools, uh, so no longer using the Chinese brush, um, oftentimes even abandoning just using ink, but also using paper collage, um, adding surface texture. But at the same time, even though they abandon some of these basic um, materials, um, but they draw attention to this kind of visual signifier of landscape painting. Um, you, one cannot help but notice that both Do Guosong and Zhuang Zhe's work sort of alluded to uh, the paintings on the left. You see that mag sort of a monumental landscape style, but nothing that nothing they did was replicating the traditional methods um, and the way of depicting these kind of landscapes. Um, so the other three artists in this exhibition that Zhu Jingli had identified had a little bit different uh, background. Uh, Yu Chengyao on the far left is a self-taught artist, and he was born in 1898, so the most senior of this group. He was um, not part of this art, histo art history, um, art artist group, because he was self-taught, self um, but almost under the radar, uh, working on his own as a retired general from the Nationalist Army. And his landscape is somewhat more traditional in in format and style, this is the hanging scroll, but none of the uh, ways that he painted them have followed anything related to uh, traditional texture strokes. And on the right side, you have two artists um, who have uh, spent their time in New York. Um, uh, Chen Xiquan on the top right uh, was trained under Walter Bropius. Um, so modernist architecture is his specialty. He's, he's a uh, modernist architect, but he also painted using uh, technology, uh, namely photography. Uh, he uses panoramic photography as a way to describe, uh, sort of uh, import this kind of shifting perspectives in Chinese landscape painting into his work. C.C. Wong on the bottom right uh, was a longtime New York fixture. Um, he was a connoisseur and uh, was traditionally trained. And he was living in New York since 1948. And this, the heyday of abstract expressionism did made him uh, add more texture to his painting. So in the way, these three artists are sort of an outlier of this whole group. I think uh, the curator picked the two artists from New York, uh, perhaps because they were already um, U.S.-based um, and had exposure in commercial galleries in, in the U.S. specializing in uh, Chinese art. And Yu Chenyao is someone, I think the U.S. at the time really favors stories of these Grandpa Moses, Grandma Moses, uh, self-taught artists who achieve certain artistic um, uh, success. 
So interestingly, these these artists um, is why the, the show was called the new landscape. You can see that the type of landscape painting is different. It had new techniques, new approaches, and imaginations. Landscape historical function as artist genre was also was repeated in a way they they were describing artist frustration um, because these artists are all displaced from mainland China and had to live elsewhere, um, could not return. Um, but also with these artists. Um, uh, centered in this exhibition, Taiwan used to be a peripheral island in Chinese history, and our history is now forefront and center and playing an important role in this whole new construct of what post-war Chinese art is. And at the same time, roping in these uh, artists who were living in New York, um, the larger Chinese diaspora now becomes more important in the whole construct of Chinese art. So back to the first slide of this exhibition. Um, interestingly, this show was not well reviewed in the US, um, even though it had very strong support uh, from the Rockefeller Foundation, as well as uh, managed by the American Federation of the Arts, an organization that's still functioning today for touring ex exhibitions. Um, the exhibition reviews were mostly uh, talking about the sort of traditional versus contemporary or identifying these paintings as in uh, a mountain on scrolls um, are typically Chinese but nobody really looked deeply into why they were significant and why there were uh, continuations of a traditional Chinese aesthetics. I think partially the way that they're displayed um, uh, hindered their uh, reception. You see on the far left, uh, many paintings were installed behind these uh, very classically designed vitrines for classical paintings. Um, and also the museums that were receptive to this exhibition to um, as, as part of the touring spots is our museums that already have a classical collection of Chinese art in order to make that connection. So all in all, um, even though it wasn't so smartly reviewed, this exhibition did validate uh, this direction for the artists included in this exhibition, especially the Fifth Moon group. Uh, these artists who had never been abroad, never shown abroad in this such curatorially driven exhibition, uh, were given sort of a boost in confidence of their direction. And these artists today were still working um, sort of along these lines. And in, in, in that sense, even though the exhibition wasn't well, well received in the U.S., the internationalization of the ink painting under this Cold War geopolitics really validated the direction for these artists and determine uh, this direction for Chinese painting. And I have to say that my own position and I'm plus today as a curator of ink art really is hugely indebted to this kind of uh, construct as, as the way that it have, uh, had pushed Chinese painting into this more internationalized view. And so I was able to study these artists and also think about how that fits into the larger global history of visual culture. So thank you very much. And I welcome uh, your questions at the end. Thank you very much, Leslie. That was a very fascinating uh, summary, and we do look forward to uh, seeing it published into a monograph in the future. And I'd like to now introduce the second speaker, Roger Nelson. Roger Nelson is an art historian and curator at National Gallery Singapore. He is author of the book, Modern Art of Southeast Asia, Introductions from A to Z, and translator of Song Soaring's 1961 Khmer novel entitled A New Sunrises Over the Old Land. Roger is co-founding co-editor of Southeast of Now, Directions in Contemporary and Modern Art in Asia, a journal published by NUS Press. He completed his PhD at the University of Melbourne 
uh, specializing in Cambodian arts of the 20th and 21st centuries. He has contributed to uh, scholarly journals and art magazines and uh, has curated exhibitions in many countries, including Cambodia, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. Uh, a recent curation include, uh, is entitled And in the Shuffle and in the Temples, Research in Progress by Buddhist Archive of Photography and Amy Lian and Enzo Camacho. Uh, so uh, I'd like to ro invite Roger to speak now. Thank you so much for the lovely invitation and introduction. Um, and good evening and good morning, everyone. Um, but it's a real pleasure to be here. And I must say as well, I really look forward to laying hands on the book. So my chapter in this book um, asks whether images really always offer insights into the context from which they emerge, and also whether this is always the most sensitive or generative way to approach the art and visual culture that emerges from Southeast Asia in the Cold War era. But I'm going to leave those questions aside for today. Um, and instead of giving you a summary of the chapter, I want to just briefly introduce the two corpuses of images that the chapter deals with, um, which in different ways uh, depict the so-called secret war that was waged by the United States in Laos as part of the Second Indochina War from 1959 until 1975, and was never, of course, a secret for those in Laos. So the first body of images is a group of 28 photographs depicting victims of American bombing and related scenes, which were collected by a senior Buddhist abbot in Luang Prabang in Laos, named Pa Kampan Sila Sangwara, who was also a celebrated maker and collector of photographs. The second body of image is a series of paintings depicting Air America planes that were deployed under the order of the US CIA for clandestine military and other purposes in Laos. These were painted by Terry Wofford, formerly Terry Gilbert, a British-born self-described aviation artist who lived and worked in Bentian in Laos from 1968 until 1972, while her American husband was a pilot for Air America. So in the chapter, I argue that these two bodies of images need to be studied not only in relation to their Cold War context in Southeast Asia, but also with reference to practices that historically predate the conflict in Laos and also that ge geographically extend beyond the region. But as I said, I'm going to leave that aside for today and instead just read a little ex excerpt from the chapter to try and zoom in on some of the images themselves, because really my method has been, um, has, has really begun and tried to stay with the images themselves. So here goes. The first image, a photograph not titled, printed in silver gelatin on inexpensive paper, dated circa 1960s. In this image, a young child tilts its head back, resting on the cheek and shoulder of a young woman, perhaps the child's mother. The skin on the child's face is discoloured and blistered. It appears to have been burned, either by flames or by chemicals or perhaps by both. The child's mouth is open as if in the uneasy sleep of unconsciousness, yet not open enough to be crying, the corners of the child's full, soft-looking lips are turned slightly downwards, as if in pain, or perhaps in many kinds of pains, which cannot be conveyed in a cry. The child's eyes are closed, and the slight but perceptible tightening of its brow above them suggests that the eyes are closed tightly, as if to shut out the world. The woman's eyes are averted from the photographer's lens and thus from our gaze. She is looking down to the child. Her brow too furrowed into a frown, an issued expression of care and concern, again seemingly silently. 
the entire image captured in black and white, closely framed around the two faces. Um, yet in the blurred shapes in the background, visible at the top right corner, we might imagine to be the lush tropical foliage of a Laotian jungle, with its sounds of fertile life and also of lethal violence. On the reverse of the image, a typewritten caption in the Lao language asserts that, quote, the disaster of the war brings sadness for life and nation. By activating both sides of the photographic print, the maker or makers of this inexpensively produced image transform um, what the photography conservator and scholar Paul Messier terms a functional photography paper into an expressive paper and thus simultaneously signal both the objective reality and also the interpretive subjectivity in not only this image itself, but in the entire photographic print as a double-sided object. But who is this child in this image? Who is this woman? What specific disaster of the war has befallen them? Are they victims of the covert aerial bombing in which terrifyingly and deafeningly one bomb was detonated on average every eight minutes for an entire decade? Or are they casualties of ground battle in which proxy soldiers were known to have indulged in extreme brutality encouraged by their American backers, such as most infamously the severing of the ears of their victims? Are this woman and child only victims or what might we imagine them to also be perpetrators of violence? Have they posed for this image or have they been caught unawares in a candid moment by the photographer? Did this woman and this child live or did they die? Was the child perhaps, do we dare to imagine, already dead when this photograph was taken? These are some among any number of questions that I think the photograph provokes. So too, to the other photographs among the 28 collected by the senior Buddhist abbot, Pakam Phan Sila Sangwara, that relate specifically to this secret war. These are questions that remain unanswered and will remain unanswerable. These photographs were made by unknown photographer or photographers, likely closely involved with the communist organization known as the Papet Lao, were collected by Pakam Phan, presented to him after his visit to the communist controlled liberated zone and kept in his kuti or abode within the Watsuanakili Temple and Monastery in Luang Prabang. The photographs were discovered there in 2007, two decades after Pakam Phan's death, by researchers working for the then newly established Buddhist Archive of Photography, which is housed in the grounds of the same temple and which has um, really sort of formed the, the central core of my research on, on the visual representations of the secret war in Laos. But now let's turn to a second image a painting titled Dropping Supplies, done in oil on canvas, in a palette of saccharinely cheerful pastel tones, dated 1971. The painting's sun-drenched colours recall the family-friendly Technicolor movies made by Disney or Paramount during the 1960s and 70s. This is the palette of an all-American fantasy world, very far from the horrors of the war in Laos, filling the frame, extending to all four sides of the portrait-oriented picture, is the pale cerulean blue and pristine chalky white of a lightly clouded sky. This is not a realistic depiction, of course, it is a fantasy. The artist has carefully framed the imagined composition to give the impression of looking upwards. There is no horizon line, no visible land, just endless sky and the airborne objects that are the painting's real subject filling the picture plane. These are wooden crates, suspended from parachutes and falling towards the unseen earth below as well as a small aircraft flying away from the scene, which has evidently dropped these crates and is now making its swift exit. 
The crates hefty construction with double reinforcements on each side suggests that they are large and holding a substantial cargo. They are suspended from parachutes which have ballooned to their maximum inflation. The painting is imbued with a still and calmly quiet air, an almost childlike sense of peace and wonder. Yet defying this teary mood of almost cartoonish calm is the fact that the aircraft flying away from the crates on the painting's left is in fact a warplane. More specifically, it is identified by the artist as a Fairchild C-123K, an American military plane used throughout the Second Indochina War, which is described by the National Museum of the US Air Force as, and I quote, a short range assault transport used for airlifting troops and cargo from small unprepared airstrips. And, and I quote again, an essential part of the US Air Force airlift during the Southeast Asia War, and also the type of plane that was used um, often for the spraying of Agent Orange. This was one of the Air America fleet of planes that was flown by Bob Wofford, an, Amer an Air America pilot who the artist at the time named Terry Gilbert would marry the following year after making this painting. The crates depicted here are filled with arms and ammuni ammunition, which the Air America pilots and their crowd called hard rice to distinguish it from the actual edible rice that, which they sometimes called soft rice, which was also sometimes airlifted into remote areas of Laos, dropped from planes, the sacks often bursting upon impact. According to the published History of Air America, military activities in Laos intensified in the years between 1968 and 1973, meaning that, and I quote, Air America had to transport more troops, more hard rice, and more big guns than before, and more company aircraft were shot at or even shot down. This period of intensified aerial warfare, which also saw an explosion in the number of refugees fleeing the bombing in Laos, corresponds precisely with the period in which Terry Wofford lived and worked in Vientiane. Yet no sense of that violence and danger is conveyed in the cheerful colours, quiet tones and placid atmosphere in this painting, Dropping Supplies. And the artist herself has explained that she believes Air America as having been, and I quote, performing a service that was primarily humanitarian and in exceptionally dangerous service circumstances, and that the majority of Air American missions were delivering aid of all sorts. This optimistic conviction is belied in many other paintings made at the time, such as this one titled Night Mission Over Laos, which depicts an Air America spy plane flying a night reconnaissance mission over a rural Laotian village. Quite at odds with the earlier work, the palette in this work is dark and ominous. The plane depicted here, the artist explains, is, and I quote, a highly modified electronic field spy plane that flew night patrols and also stayed aloft during the day for many hours. The aircraft's operation was unaffected, unaffected by cloud cover, according to the artists, yet the clouds in her, in her depiction of its work are, and I quote, symbolic of the hidden nature of these missions. The pitch-truth houses of the Laotian village visible in the ground below all have lights burning inside. The careful inclusion of this detail leaves us wondering, as the spy plane's operators must have been, what is happening in this village, what is being said or planned or done. With retrospective knowledge of the scale of the destruction during the secret war in Laos, we might also wonder, did this village survive or was it bombed into oblivion by another American plane? The sense of danger and mystery in this painting leaves us guessing and fearful. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Roger. I think um, that was a fascinating juxtaposition and visual analysis. Uh, I think uh, Medoli will introduce the other speakers now. Okay. 
the next speaker is Hiroshi Sunairi, originally from Hiroshima. Hiroshi is known for tree project, which asks people to raise the tree seeds from atom bomb, bomb trees. Today, he will speak about his latest documentary film from the three-part film on Okinawa, uh, which is entitled OK2 from Okinawa with Love. He will be speaking about uh, Mao Ishikawa, the photographer Mao Ishikawa and her photo books. Please welcome Hiroshi. Thank you, Nidori, for the introduction and thank you everyone uh, for being here. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. And I'm just sharing this image and I'm going to start talking. Um, so uh, this image is from, uh, this is the cover of the uh, of a book uh, called Red Flower, uh, The Women of Okinawa Bao by Mao Ishikawa, uh, who's a Okinawan female photographer. Um, and I met Mao when she came to uh, exhibit her pictures of the U.S. bases in Okinawa in a group exhibition, The Perpetual Moment, Visions from Within Okinawa and Korea, at MoMA PS1 in 2004. Then later in 2016, I uh, saw her again in New York. Uh, this is a, the republishing uh, of the Akabana book at the Dashwood Books of uh, at Dashwood Books of Noho. Uh, and Akabana, the women of Okinawa, is about um, Okinawa photographer Mao Ishikawa during her early 20s, between 1975 to 1977, worked as a barmaid in establishments catered to African-American GIs stationed in Koza City and Kintown, Okinawa. At the time, Black soldiers still faced considerable discrimination in the U.S. and the military. And Okinawa women like Ishikawa, who had relationship with these Black men, were derided as tampan prostitutes. Ishikawa produced body of photographs that documented diaristic intimacy of friendship, love affair, wild nights, and domestic accords shared amongst her social circle. And briefly after her uh, republishing party at the Dashwood Books, she had a lecture uh, at the East Asian De Department of NYU. Uh, the symposium was titled as uh, looking at Okinawa, race, gender, nation. The first speaker showed Mao's photograph as, as the very image of the struggle of Okinawan women. We noticed Mao uh, with her head down and we got worried as we knew, uh, me and my friends knew that Mao had a cancer which she just found out earlier that year. After the first lecture, Mao came on stage <clears throat> as a second lecture she was furious about her picture being used without permission as well as being politicized. She stormed about her pictures being not about politics or struggle, but love. She then went on uh, about how she began this project, uh, taking pictures uh, of these women, uh, along with uh, uh, Black soldiers, uh, Black American soldiers, uh, she grew up in Okinawa, an island that was occupied by the U.S. Uh, after the World War II, learning, hearing, and seeing often news about rape, 
rapes and murders of Okinawa women and men by the U.S. military personnel. From 1945 to 1972, uh, Ryukyu police, the Okinawan police, had no right to detain U.S. military members. And basically, Americans did whatever they wanted. So many rapes and murders unreported and swept under the rug. When Okinawa was returned to Japan in 1972 from the US, um, and when Okinawa people realized that they came back to Japan with the US military bases attached, they went on a rampage. She was there in a demonstration as a high school student. As Mao said, I've been thinking since then, what is Okinawa to Japan? For her, an authentic Okinawa was the U.S. military in Okinawa, because that's what, that's what she grew up with. She wanted to photograph Okinawa, so American soldiers became her interest. And that's how she jumped into working at a bar that served black GIs in Kokoza. In 1970s, right after the civil rights movement in the U.S., U.S. soldiers uh, soldiers' entertainment joints in Okinawa were still segregated to the white area and the black area. She began working at the, one of the black bars as a barmaid, not knowing English, the first time meeting a, uh, a black person. She knew nothing about them, and she couldn't tell from one person to the other. They all looked the same to her. She began taking pictures of black folks, as she met at the bar, the girls she worked with, some Okinawan girls, some, some Japanese girls, her and her sexual intimacy, some life, as she said in the film, letting it all out, semen, sweat, spit, banging each other. The rawness was real. Uh, let me share the rawness. Um, Um, as Mao has gone through some relationship uh, with black soldiers, she starts to understand some good, some trouble, some light about being single while having a wife and kids back in the U.S. She learned them as an individual, as warm as everyone, every one of us, as flaky, as proud, as sneaky, as genuine, depending on that individual. She no longer saw them as black people. She knew him as a person with complexity and contradiction, as we all are. She also became fascinated with women at the bars, despite how Okinawa people disregarded these girls mingling with Americans and the Black people. These women did what they wanted. This freedom she found thrilling, amazing, and liberating. And this is what she says in the film, doing what you love, saying what you want, naked because it's hot. Why is that bad? It's a freedom on this tiny island to do it with confidence. It's nice to live like that. People should let themselves free. Am I right? For her, the images of these women are the very images of their freedom, not struggle, not politics, but love of their life. Hearing her talk in the context of U.S., uh, because I live in the U.S., with a social media filled with the police brutality towards African-American people, then the Black Lives Matter um, um, later. So Mao's straight talk intertwined with her own racism, coming to understand Black people to 
experience moved me so much, so straightforward. And as I am in the context of ultra-sensitive racial politics in the U.S., I found her discourse fresh and effective. I thought American people should hear her talk. Um, and that's how I became interested in making a documentary about her. Um, share beautiful. Of course, um, then, um, because I knew about her stage four cancer, uh, which also um, forced me to, to act fast uh, to start a documentary. And what is her resolution to, um, uh, to capturing authentic Okinawa? Uh, that is the US military, US military in Okinawa uh, through her book. Uh, this is what she says. Okinawa, Okinawa people, Okinawa families have family members married to America or they have relatives working in the military or those who accept American soldiers that are family members. However, they could be anti-Americans. So it's quite normal for two ideas to exist in one Okinawa person. And she says, back then, I met Okinawa soldiers myself. I fell in love, understood many things. I loved US soldiers. I hate US military. Uh, this is um, the, her uh, last quote. Um, anyhow, so in some ways, uh, my film sort of reflects uh, the mayhem of the people uh, under the, the, uh, the post-colonial um, and um, Cold War regime. Um, and in some ways, it's a, it's a very lively um, mayhem. And if I have enough time, I would like to show the, uh, the, the trailer. Is it possible? Do I have two more minutes? Two minutes. Two minutes. Before. Yes, yes. Great. So let me share that. だから本当になんかまあ写真を眺めてみてなんか浮かんでくることを喋ってもいいんじゃないですかね。うん。まあとにかくそれぞれに。これこれのことは喋ってた。その一枚のことは喋ってないと思います。うん、分かった。じゃ
Is Kidla Tahimik, who is a Filipino independent filmmaker and a subject of my chapter, Chapter 4. The chapter is about an unforgettable summer that we spent with a recycled bomb head bell for peas made of, uh, out of an unexploded bomb the US used to attack Japanese in Baguio, uh, the Philippines during World War II. And Kidlat and the Baguio artist brought it to Hiroshima uh, for healing our planet Earth. Uh, that was the art project name in 1995. Trained as an economist, Kidlat rejects the Hollywood style big budget production, embraces instead the cup of gasoline filmmaking method. It required 40 years for him to complete a single film, Balik Bayam One, which I think translates as Return to Home Country Number One, which is about Magellan's slave Enrique de Malacca's circumnavigation in 1521. In the film, Enrique manages his misfortune by going with its current. Ultimately, Magellan dies and Enrique survives Today, I asked him if he can speak about what came after Enrique's journey. So please welcome Kidlat. Thank you. I uh, was trying to find how I could relate to this conference. When I started reading who were the speakers and what were their topics, I said, hmm, how can I mix with these people and I asked Midori to try to give me a clue. Um, in a way, I guess that maybe the, the word Cold War already scared me because uh, what are my films and what are my processes? Are they have any relation at all to the Cold War? But maybe um, Midori gave me a little door and I think it's okay that colonization, the old colonial drive of Magellan and how maybe it's still nonstop going on today. And maybe how as an artist, I try to deal with this uh, topic. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can sneak in into your little door. Um, okay. Um, if we're trying to understand how artists create a new language or, or, or new visuals or even processes of doing their art uh, as a response to the situation where maybe the Cold War was like a, a, an umbrella and over. Maybe I can find my 
way. You know, in Philippines, we say, uh, we do things kapa-kapa, you know, you kapa-kapa, you grope your way into the thing. And I, I think not like academics who spell out things very clearly before they even open their mouth. Um, let me start with my first film called Perfume Nightmare, um, which came out in 78. I got classified immediately by the intellectuals as, uh, wow, this third cinema filmmaker. I thought, oh, yeah, maybe they're talking about the third world filmmaker born in a third world, telling a third world story. And uh, yeah, making it a third world way. Of course, I only... Maybe two decades later, I realized that ah, third cinema is a very heavily loaded word with ideological nuances. And it was not as simple as just being uh, a third world filmmaker and telling a third world story. So I uh, wondered whether this is also an entry point. Um, I realized from the films I've made and the reactions is that although my themes might have been consciously trying to talk about uh, some third world issues or motifs, um, I think the way of making the film became <laughs> something where well, the medium is the message. Uh, I mean, how I completed my first film, 16 millimeter, there was no video in those days, uh, with the high cost of celluloid and everything, and how I somehow completed a story and, and reached the finish line. Um, maybe this was somehow emerging of the topic I was talking about and, and the process of making the film. So maybe my question was, is this what uh, Midori meant? That maybe artists are innovating their processes or coping with new processes because of uh, an overall theme that was being fought out in the Cold War. Um, maybe yeah, Midori mentioned that I, I tore up my MBA diploma. <laughs> so it shows that in a way I I got caught in a way of thinking uh, that is very predominant American. Who thinks big? Go with big budgets, make big profits. And maybe that would have led me to just become a Hollywood filmmaker or try to be one. Um, no, but uh, my films are made on almost zero budget, and uh, somehow um, I asked myself, did burning, did tearing up my diploma, MBA diploma, just is that a you know way of burning the bridge? Is that all it takes to decolonize a filmmaker? I mean, can I say, hey, <laughs> I've done it? <laughs> I've torn the diploma, which I think also Donald Trump has, <laughs> uh, I found out lately. Um, 
Okay, but maybe I have to look back uh, how I grew up. Uh, I have been colonized since I was a kid. I, I was born in an in American hill station, and Americans came to bag to the to Philippines. They were very amateur colonialists, and they found out, oh, it's too hot to govern in bag in, in in Manila. So let's find a hill station. They found a hill station, and it's in the middle of a very rich indigenous culture and so i had to grow up with this mix of indigenous wisdom from the tribals and this cosmopolitan culture from an american uh, world power now when i made perfume nightmare i guess i yeah i it was uh, my hero was somebody who was consciously unconsciously fighting uh, if you can use that word, cultural imperialism. And by making the film, I, I guess I must have really debunked all my MBA knowledge from Wharton and uh, did it, yeah, with all the, just willpower to reach the finish line. Uh, BFI, British Film Institute critic wrote, Perfume Nightmare, you end up watching this very crudely made film, and in the end, you're, you're rooting for the filmmaker to reach the finish line, the end. And uh, there was a, a South African critic who described Perfume Nightmares. It's like a shanty house um, where, you know, it's made of cardboard, bits of glass, bits of uh, tin, but every single piece is so vital so that made me look at my process and i say hey uh maybe that's how i got classified as third cinema but i don't i don't feel i have any ideological way of thinking that that can relate to the way they do their things and okay that's where maybe in a way i started had to think about it because my mother when she saw the film, was kind of confused and uh, and said, but the, she she drew up something and she said, Kitlat, why did you make such an anti-American film? I guess I'm not sure I was making something anti-American, but I had to think about it because yeah, my my lovely mother just she's had to find a simple answer that I could say, and I ma, I think. I made that film more about the circumstance of our local culture being suppressed or displaced by that strong American culture that dominates the country now. So maybe that's why I took an MBA. Anyway, that's another story. Um, if that culture of America was such an important thing that now I might frame it as is what did it make a monster in me that i have to grapple with so maybe in a way uh i might think of it this way that the process that i had made i i, I just got an old bolex camera hand wound i i used myself as the main actor um, i mean a lot of filmmakers do that now but uh, i i bought expired film and just somehow over two years just pieced it together until it crossed the finish line and 
And I began to see in a way how, yeah, I, maybe when I first tried to make a movie, I thought, oh, well, it might be like a Hollywood film. Not understanding the process of Hollywood and big capital. But okay, I began to see how Hollywood was the kind of a, one of the Trojan horses. It's a Trojan horse left behind when America left on July 4th, 1946. Do you, do you know that I was celebrating July 4th as our Independence Day until I was 21? The Philippines thought of it as our Independence Day until in 1963, President Macapagal said, hey, 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 we won our independence long before that. We won our independence against the Spanish on June 12th, 1898. And, since then we changed it and I think that has created a lot of introspection also of, which is part of the de, the benevolent the decolonization de process um, which brought me to a, a description to my mother and I said you know Ma, I'm, what I'm dealing with in Perfect Nightmare is uh, you know you know this song killing us softly with their song I mean, we Filipinos are very, <laughs> we have a world reputation for being great at karaoke because we can really come in with those uh, Western pop hits and, and sing with, with real gusto. Uh, maybe that is part of the benevolent assimilation process, that, uh, whether it's movies or karaoke got us into the picture. Now, okay, let me jump to another bookend. The Perfume Nightmare was my debut film which I did in 1977. And my the last film that um, Midori described is, uh, yeah, it's called Balik Baya Number no. 1. It's about the first circumnavigation of the globe in 1521, which we are now celebrating the 500th year. Wow, the Spanish came. They discovered the Philippines. Wow, lucky us. Ah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Okay, I've started to reframe things from what I learned from our history books. And, um, okay, my film sort of ends with the the Battle of Mactan, which is where Magellan gets beaten by Lapu-Lapu, our chieftain of a small village. And that's, that battle is described by Antonio Pigafetta, the chronicler of, of that voyage. That's a, more as a, a typical battle, and he was counting how many Spanish warriors there were and and how many 1,500 villagers, savages, attacked our small group of 60 people. Anyway, of course, it was the POV of the invaders. So for them, Lapu-Lapu was the villain, and Magellan was the hero of that battle, although he died. and. But I would like to reframe that battle as oh, maybe Lapu-Lapu was doing a big cultural struggle. He was trying to preserve uh, his li a lifestyle, not just winning another uh, plume of a victory, but it was uh, saying, hey, it's... Our culture is our way of being. It's our our ways of knowing. 
but why are you coming? And maybe now looking back with hindsight, they started with guns, but in the longer run, it was killing us softly uh, <laughs> with the alphabet, with our fashions. We stopped wearing our G-strings, although I still like to do that because it's a part of my statement. Hey, why are we giving up everything? Why do we have to dress like them uh, so that, uh, yeah, to be in? Now, the Americans brought in benevolent assimilation as a policy um, when they brought in 300 public school teachers on, 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 uh, on a boat called the USS Thomas. That's why we call them the Thomasites. And they trained our public school teachers. And in a way, this is, this is very different from the other, you know, cultural suppression can come in like the violent ways, like the Spaniards were for, uh, capturing our babaylans, our shaman women, and feeding them to the crocodiles as if that would end uh, our spiritual connections with our deities. But then the Americans were smarter and said, hey, let's stop believing that a dead Indian, a good Indian is a dead Indian. Let's try to assimilate them and get them to study our ABCs and uh, watch our movies. Then they're easier to govern. So this killing us softly with a song is a kind of, strategy that I guess also became evident to me after evident after after um, well this period when we were starting to look at our independence and the Cold War was raging at that time. So let me now I think to the question of Midori can I show a one one in a one minute clip um just to end this with a visual. So um we're going to see a little bit of the end of the trip. Uh, Enrique, the slave, has uh, been in the last will of testament, becomes a free man on the death of his master. And so what does, hap what does happen to him at, after at the end of that battle? So let's go and share this. And go. That they may have to fight a physical war. circumnavigation of the globe, but just at the return of a lost son. 
Jamaica returned to be able to tell future generations about the first circumnavigation of the globe. So that's how um, this world traveler who accidentally becomes the first circumnavigator of the globe, beating his master to the title, um, comes home. I hope you, I don't know if you guys recognize that as me 35, 40 years ago, <laughs> playing the slave, uh, as part of my strategy to be able to tell this story. But I think, you know, yeah, thank for you this, so for, much. For this, that's the last thing. I just realized that that ending I chose was really learning after that killing us softly, traveling around the world. He had learned again to dance his own dance, sing his own song, going back to his culture and finding its strengths. That's my decolonization process. And I think it might be relevant to our conference today. Thank you, Midori, for inviting me. So, first, uh, I think we'd like to invite uh, our panelists for the questions. So, uh, Reiko's question is to Leslie. Uh, it's about, uh, there, are, there are two parts. Um, so, how much of geopolitical intention was held by uh, the artists themselves and uh, the exhibition curators? Uh, for uh, the exhibition uh, in the U.S. Um, thank you, Reiko, for the question, Dr. Tomi. Um, I, I think, in a way, this exhibition in the U.S. Uh, was conceived in part due to the physical inaccessibility of the mainland. Um, and that's why, in a way, through that, it became a marker for um, artistic and ideological difference um, between um, the mainland side and the Taiwanese side. Um, so in a way, um, as I mentioned, the, the American culture was, was quite uh, prevalent. Uh, artistic culture was readily available to artists in Taiwan. Um, so they knew that abstraction was the lingua franca of the world at the time. And so for them, uh, to make their work more uh, more visible in the world, uh, more readable to the world. Uh, they know that abstraction is the style that they should adapt. Um, but at the same time, they did look back to their own culture, thinking that uh, landscape painting traditionally was never really about depicting um, the mountains. It's really about the mind. So in a way, they found that whole idea of landscape painting to be abstract itself. So in a way, it's a match um, under this kind of um, condition and circumstance. Um, from the curator's side, um, he himself uh, was a expert in Yuan Dynasty painting, uh, landscape painting. So um, naturally, that's something he was looking for, um, perhaps in the more uh, contemporary works. Um, but I think the part of the construct of this exhibition that it saw, he sought uh, funding from the uh, Rockefeller Fund, the, the JDR Third Fund. Um, the, the fund itself was the organization that facilitates cultural diplomacy and cultural exchange um, under that kind of um, American uh, foreign policy. So um, I think at the time, what was available to the curator was this, um, and and that's the active organization that's supporting exhibitions of 
uh, styles of works that may have similarities or affinities um, to uh, what's hip or um, what's accepted in the U.S. But interestingly, when this exhibition was touring the U.S. in the 60s, um, sort of the heyday of after expression is, is already past. Um, hard edge paintings, opt art and conceptual art has already come on. Uh, come on the scene. So that's also another reason that con contributed to that um, to may perhaps not be so welcomed uh, or so attract become then it wasn't a new attraction in town. So I think the intention was um, what Reiko was asking is perhaps um, incipient in the whole situation and circumstance. And my paper was trying to argue how these um, background forces um, uh, created this kind of circumstance for this kind of particular style of art to emerge. Uh, so we have a question from uh, John Juan Gualis. In 1968, when the American or diasporic Chinese critics wrote about the Chinese landscape painting exhibition, did they mention the cultural revolution was going on in mainland China at the time? If so, how did they relate this to the paintings on the exhibition? Um, thank you for that question. Um, I actually opened my paper sort of with that um, comparison as 1966 was the start of Cultural Revolution on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. Um, no, it, from the reviews that I have read, uh, there wasn't sort of explicit mentioning of that. Um, most of the critics or uh, newspaper reporters were just talking about how this is the, uh, this is an artistic style that's emerging from the new China. Um, so it wasn't, uh, as far as I know, uh, to my knowledge, it wasn't so, um, that kind of contrast wasn't highlighted, but uh, in my paper, I put that as part of the uh, background. But thank you. Oh, we will come to the next question in the Q&A from Narissa Bowles. Uh, it's for Kit Lutz. Um, so it's about uh, the, so it says you're making films during uh, Marco's time and your last film, uh, Balik Fayan, was the post-Marco's era as an artist during the Cold War and the post-Cold War era. Do you think dictators in power influence your work? Uh, Balik Fayan as a term is used by various Philippines residents. You know, when martial law was um, was imposed, I, uh, I was in Germany at that time. So in a way, I was watching what was happening from a distance. Um, I was very aware that uh, Marcos was a vital pawn in the Vietnam War. And the city where I come from, I, uh, like Hiroshi was talking about, the US base was the very central thing in our town. And it was... The, but it was not the the aggressive base. It was it was Clark Field and Subic were air bases where jet planes were flying and bringing combat troops there. Uh, John Hay Air Base in Baguio was a rec, rest and recreation base. So all these battle weary soldiers would come up to Baguio and and I could see that uh, this was one of the hand, uh, clever tools that Mr. Marcus used to be able to keep American support for his dictatorship. Um, when I came back in 
79 i and then yeah i continued make i, I was doing my films uh, since my films were not directly talking about martial law but had i don't know if an, uh, an anti-colonial team might have some indirect bearing on sitting dictators but i was able to finish my films uh, although my films were never shown publicly i never had a big audience so i was not a dangerous and indy is not a dangerous uh, filmmaker because he doesn't have big movie stars big box office potential and his messages may not be absorbed by the big public and revolt against against the dictator so i is i believe your question is in the context of how as an artist i continue to operate under that regime is if correct me if i'm wrong but i think uh, my 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 themes have somehow survived the topicality of of martial law and the dictator i mean not not, not that my works are anything of, of, of highly political value, but at least in terms of looking at the colonial process. You know, whenever I make a film, I think half of my enemies are probably the most liberal people too, because uh, <clears throat> I'm not using a film language that they're familiar with. Most people are still brainwashed by the Hollywood way of telling stories. And if you try to tell your anti-colonial story in your own way um, you might leave a few more confused people saying hey what's this guy up to and so I, I didn't do it the popular way I mean I'm saying but I think uh, I have been acknowledged lately that my films may have relevance to nationalist movements anti-colonial movements not necessarily with a clenched fist, but uh, in a humorous way. I hope that answers the question. Okay, so there, there are other questions uh, for Kidlot as well. And I just want to briefly mention, uh, there's a message from Daryl Davis uh, that says, it's wonderful to see you, Kidlot, after many decades. You remain so inclusive, incisive and provocative. Uh, so... I hope you received that message. And uh, another question for Kitla from Kifi Ma. Uh, thank you for your insight on killing U.S. softly and the importance of decolonizing the self. My question is how can we teach others to see how certain practices are killing us softly and how can we expand ways to decolonize ourselves and others? In a way, that is the hardest enemy. I mean, uh, I guess if I would do a clenched fist way, I would just dynamite all the te television towers <laughs> and maybe the cineplexes and try to, uh, yeah, snuff out those colonizing visuals, killing us softly. But I, I've just come to accept that anyway, um, my films themselves may not necessarily have the broad audiences that need to be colonized. But maybe I've started a small process because there are not of indie filmmakers now. 
who can make films with a more palatable language, more popular language, and who can deal with this and, and spread the word. Uh, I can, in my small way, okay, I'm, I have a reputation for wearing my G-string, my loincloth, to uh, ambassador's cocktail parties or to award-winning sessions. And it's a small way I can make a statement that why are we ashamed? Why, would, why do we believe their narrative that it's shameful to be to do the old rituals or to wear our old costumes? Why do we have to be cool and dance to Michael Jackson and wear jeans to be in, but that in is their in, and this is not always necessarily meaning it's also our being in. So in this way, my cultural battles uh, center on this, and uh, I leave it to the next generation of indie filmmakers to to have a clearer, more palatable message for the broader audiences. Thank you so much. Um, uh, so there's a question from uh, Russell Lung, which I think we can uh, paraphrase a little bit into um, how we may uh, develop artistic strategies to resist uh, China uh, dominance in uh, Southeast Asian states. I think this is a very tough uh, question, uh, but I also wonder if uh, uh, we have sufficient um, context to address this uh, question today. So I'd like to ask if any of the panelists would like to respond uh, to that. So actually uh, we have um, another artist uh, writing about art and the Cold War in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, who is also Yi, a Malaysian-born uh, Taipei-based artist. And in her film installation, uh, she discusses in, uh, extensively about um, the migration, the issue of migration and Chinese identities uh, in Malaysia and Southeast Asia. So if you're interested in that issue, uh, maybe you can uh, check out her chapter and uh, her videos. Some of them are online. So I'd like to come to uh, Nerissa's uh, question for Hiroshi. Uh, so thank you for your fascinating trailer. Could you talk about your artistic decision to show these intimate photographs at this time of Black Lives Matters and the Me Too era? The photographs are beautiful and also problematic, and I would like to hear why you choose to entitle your film, There Was Love. Um, yes, actually, There Was Love is just a quote from the movie, and uh, the title of the movie is uh, From Okinawa with Love. Um, and From Okinawa with Love um, is um, not only about the photographs, but also her experience uh, of working at a bar, living as an Okinawan, uh, having a complex, uh, troubled identity as an Okinawan. Uh, growing up uh, in 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 the in the island uh, occupied by the U.S. and the presence of U.S. military, um, I understand that, that the picture that I showed, uh, I just wanted to show the rawness that she was talking about through that picture. But the uh, 
the, the book, uh, Akabana, is not only just a naked picture of uh, women and, and men, um, uh, specifically of black men, uh, but also all kinds of life in general of, of these people uh, who are hanging out at the time. And then also why I think, uh, because I actually presented uh, this uh, little bit of a trailer to, uh, to a workshop in New York, and um, um, in some ways, the participants of the workshop all um, became very hysteric uh, when they uh, saw the uh, black nail, nail bot. And they asked me, how, how dare you present a black nail bot? How dare, uh, how can, how, like, what, uh, what, uh, uh, what right uh, do you have to represent black body? Um, and it's a very interesting question. Um, and um, first of all, the, the images of a black male um, in her photographs are first of all beautiful. Um, and then also it's a celebration of uh, youth, uh, sexuality, connection uh, between Okinawa women and, um, and African-American uh, American soldiers. Um, and then also, these African-American soldiers are part of the colonizers. Um, and then these women uh, that she took the pictures and that, that are working at a bar, and then also uh, Mao Ishikawa herself was uh, were barmaid. Um, so there's this like complex power relationship and the photograph in some ways um, not only talks about the, 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 the beauty and, 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 and uh, beauty of um, black, a male body, uh, as well as the uh, Okinawa women's body, but also uh, this power play. Um, and it's not so simple and it's, it's really uh, rich and complex. And, and I would love you to see the film and see the whole scope of things because it's not just, uh, it, it's a lot of contradiction and it's a lot of beauty and it's life as it is. Thank you very much, Hiroshi. And uh, the last one is a comment rather than a question is to thank uh, Roger's um, close reading of the photographs and the fantasy paintings. Uh, yes, indeed. I think as editors, we enjoyed uh, reading that chapters a lot. Um, yeah, so uh, since we are uh, approaching uh, the end of um, today's event, uh, if there's no pressing questions, I'd like to wrap up. Uh, Middley, would you like to uh, say something to uh, close the event? Or does any of the panelists like to add anything? Maybe have questions with, to each other? Um, I'd like to react to just what Hiroshi said, no? That I think we artists, whether we're motivated by the beauty of, of bodies or some aesthetic uh, or environmental energies within us, there will always be people who will frame our work in terms of political correctness. And there will always be people who will try to uh, question our motives and quite often I 
I, I sometimes learn about political framings in my film when I read it from the critics. And it may not have always been a conscious artistic input to make it, uh, you know, a forceful political statement or what. So I think I think more people have to understand the, the the artistic process, which is we are reacting to. Yeah, maybe sometimes to mind uh, inputs, but sometimes we are just reacting to what is there. And and if if the black body merged with a with also an acute Asian body creates a new. Uh, you know, a new appreciation for for that closeness and it, it evokes stories of love. I think we should leave it there than always trying to contextualize it with, uh, with new political slogans. So I kind of like saw that there's a resentment for being categorized or being uh, fit into something. Is that correct? You're asking me? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm sometimes afraid when people start categorizing things in 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 very either academic terms or in very very nuances that, and then but make it a thing that slices somebody out from their context and. Uh, maybe I have been very sensitive about, <laughs> like when, uh, yeah, oh, I'm a third cinema director. Oh, oh, oh. Or uh, if people say, hey, Kidlat, uh, you're wearing a, a G-string. Um, are you an exhibitionist? <laughs> I mean, you can frame anything and so that you can just to debunk anything. I think that's, that's a, we have to be aware of that. And maybe sometimes we just have to take the artistic value, and if it has a political connotation, it's a bonus. Although, of course, there are also very strong works that are driven by the by a strong political ideology and also become aesthetic uh, wonders. No? So, I, I I feel that sometimes uh, there are too much reading in, and maybe that's that's not my problem. <laughs> I hope. Thank you. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, it just went so quickly and we've been on screen for one hour and 44 minutes. So I think we will need to close. Yeah. So uh, before we conclude, I just want to thank, congratulate uh, Professor Yamamura and Professor Lee on their book, along with all the rest of the contributors who are able to join us today. Uh, for today's discussion. Uh, the link to purchase their book is available on our website, uh, the page that you went to to register for this talk. Uh, please use the discount code FLR40 to get a discount on the book. Good summer reading. Uh, learn more about their chapters and everybody else who couldn't join us today. Uh, for any attendees seeking information on Asian American history and anti-racism resources for your classroom or community, uh, the Institute has a list of available resources on our website under publication, CUNY form, in the resources section of Corona Conversations. Uh, enjoy the rest of your summer, stay healthy, get vaccinated, and be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. 
I'll see you soon at our other upcoming events and check out the video later on this afternoon or tomorrow morning, wherever you are. Have a good day, everybody. Thank you.